Global trade is about to get more complex than ever before. Many companies are in danger of being swallowed up by new rules and regulations. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Congress is mulling over the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that controversial free trade agreement negotiated by the U.S. and 11 other Pacific Rim countries. Assuming the TPP is ratified, it will present traders with a whole new series of complications related to rules of origin, duties, and taxation. They're going to have to engage in sophisticated tariff engineering, according to my guest today, Gary Baracco, Director of Global Product Marketing with Amber Road. He talks about what companies must do to sharpen their supplier relationships, especially how they can gain visibility of multiple tiers of suppliers, whose activities often are invisible to the end manufacturer. And we'll hear about the biggest trade compliance restrictions coming down the pike, as well as the many factors that go into a company's decision to alter its sourcing strategies. Finally, we'll learn whether nearshoring of manufacturing is really happening, and for that matter, what that term really means. So here is my conversation with Gary Baracco. Gary Baracco, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, assuming that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is indeed ratified by Congress, that's going to saddle companies with a whole new regime of requirements with regard to managing rules of origin, much as was the case in the wake of the passage of NAFTA. So tell me a little bit about what are some of the complications and concerns that will arise on the rules of origin side with the passage and the ratification of the TPP. Sure, Bob. And, and we, you know, a lot of the brands and manufacturers that we're talking to are, are fairly confident that TPP is going to move ahead. And especially the footwear industry, they're looking forward to that as the duty rates for uh, footwear imports into the U.S. are still higher than things such as cell phone. But rule of origin and determining country of origin for the components in the fitness products is really important to them at this point so that they can qualify. What they're looking for is technology systems to help them drill down into the detail at the bill of material level, because that's where you really need to determine whether you can meet the qualifications for these trade agreements. And looking at bomb-level uh, definitions helps to provide the classification and logistics teams, and it just makes tariff engineering a function that's more prevalent than before. And that term tariff engineering is starting to emerge um, as a new practice. And what we mean by that is kind of reverse engineering the way we're putting together the finished good and ensuring that the finished good meets all of the tariff regulations that will be put in place. 
Do you feel that companies are already able to do that to a certain extent? Did NAFTA kind of begin to train them, or do they have a ways to go before they can embrace this concept? Overall, we're still seeing the need for companies to look at a and to take this new perspective to uh, product uh, commercialization. They have not done such a great job, and I, I don't know that so much is being done in North America anymore, and everything that's being done and outsourced into Asia has not had as close a look as anything that might uh, qualify for NAFTA. So we're hearing that the tools are necessary and also looking so much uh, further upstream into the supply chain to the design side to qualify for preferential trade. So even with previous levels of trade, companies are not totally up to speed on this concept of tariff engineering and, and getting down to the bill of materials level. And yet we're looking at a significant increase in cross-border trade, both because of the TPP and just because of even without it, we'd probably see that. So how do you stay compliant against the backdrop? If you Number one, if you're, if you're a little bit behind the curve to begin with, now suddenly you have the additional challenge of just more trade. How, talk about a little bit about how companies can deal with that challenge. We're seeing a per, an increase in global trade volumes overall, and, and just – Early this week, WTO published a new report saying that we might see that back down early in the new year. But I think most of the organizations we're working with are still looking forward to that increase in trade volume and international trade, cross-border doing business. Companies are faced with, with increasingly complex sets of regulation, import, export, reporting, all of that. And so in general, taxes on business are also going up. So that means that any highly, let's call it a tax-efficient supply chain, is a source of a competitive advantage. So that means being able to have quality information about all the duties and tariffs and other potential non-product costs, as well as leveraging where uh, the possibilities exist to grow, let's say, to free trade zone. And we recently had a customer of ours open a new trade zone, and they're using our software solutions to help manage uh, all of the complexities that go into to the FTZ. It all starts, of course, with, with getting the right suppliers lined up. I'm wondering if you could tell me what are some of the ways in which companies are properly vetting their suppliers now and how they might do that in the future in this even more complex environment. Well, we're seeing an increase of, of the old uh, Supplier Relationship Management, or SRM, initiative. They're on the rise. And companies who've successfully implemented good Supplier Relationship Management programs have realized real dollar value and return on their technology investment. One of our Hallmark customers, Calares, formerly Brown Shoe Company, um, has done just that. They had the need to shift their supplier base outside of China because of the labor costs and other reasons that make China uh, less attractive. And in doing so, they needed to improve their supplier relationship and collaboration. Uh, on top of that, we're seeing supplier selection becoming the most important decision that a manufacturer has to make. So a good SRM program really needs to include a range of screening levels. This could be social compliance, restricted party lists, capacity and capability uh, capturing of data. And, of course, we're still looking at financial stability information to ensure that that supplier is going to be 
a viable and a long-term sustainable supplier for you. So certainly you have to do more than rely on the supplier's word. You have to conduct research that goes well beyond just speaking with the supplier, right? Yeah, for sure. There's, you know, there's numerous levels of vetting programs that most of our manufacturers and customers are using. That includes third-party auditing, uh, on-site inspections. You know, we're, we've been doing a, a good job at being more socially compliant, but at the same time, we need to have other things that we consider, right? And that's looking holistically at the supplier's capability. Also, the use of by suppliers and manufacturers and contract manufacturers of subcontractors, that seems to have been the reason for many of the problems that have emerged in recent years with uh, the subs making stuff that the OEM didn't even know that they were making. And so not only are you vetting a supplier, but how do you make sure that going up the tiers of the supply chain that you have control and visibility of that? Yeah, I think there's a combination of both process and technology that can help uh, at least alert a manufacturer to whether that is happening. The way that we feel that that is best implemented is by managing uh, suppliers' capacity, so knowing what their capabilities are. For instance, uh, you know, 10,000 units a month can come out of this factory. At the same time, we're then pulling in purchase order information so we can match up the purchase order to the capacity. And at that point, if we see that our purchase orders have exceeded the capacity requirements or capacity capabilities of that factory, that sends up an alert. And that would signal that there's a great possibility of that factory outsourcing any production. Visibility of sourcing seems so important these days, especially in the area of human rights. You have conflict this, conflict that. You have instances of human slavery in the supply chain. And even in factories where the workers are paid, maybe they're not paid enough or the conditions are poor. And then you have to go all the way back to raw materials as well. You can't just be talking about what's going on at the factory. So what are the strategies there? As you say, you're talking at the, uh, the bomb level, the bill of materials level. Going back to the actual, you know, farm where something is, is grown or the mines where some minerals come from, I mean, how well are companies doing that now? And, and what are some tips that would allow them to do that better? But just this week, the Associated Press and a lot of the media outlets published an article about the shrimp processing industry. And uh, I'll be releasing a blog uh, tomorrow to talk about that. Once again, slavery is becoming more evident and, and exposed in supply chains. This is a mention about uh, shrimp production and processing in Thailand and how um, they are using forced labor to clean and devein the shrimp, right? So something as simple that we don't think about is the food that we get on our, our dinner tables may have human trafficking and slavery involved. Uh, our customers are doing a great job of starting to reach down to the Tier 2 and Tier 3 level suppliers. This is where they have the best control. And now it's considered almost a supply chain norm that Tier 2 be included in supplier audits and vet the vetting process. So I think you know, five, six years ago, and certainly before Bangladesh and the Rana Plaza fire, we didn't see any of that. But today it is becoming more prevalent. Tier 2, you say, but of course there are often Tiers 3 and 4 as well. So are we going to move in that direction progressively? 
I would hope that we can. I don't know whether the traceability levels are there. As supply chains become more aware and cognizant of the need to do that, I think we will. But, you know, we were hoping that the conflict minerals rule, the Dodd-Frank Act, would move us in that direction. But now we see that that's already in the Supreme Court and being challenged. And so conflict minerals is almost like an on-hold project. When that would have been a catalyst to other human trafficking and slavery sanctions that could be in place by governments. But uh, I'm, I'm afraid that it's losing its teeth uh, with so much contest in the courts. I don't know. You would think that with the necessity of protecting brand reputation, that companies would be incentivized to just go ahead and do that, even if they weren't being required to do so. I mean, to a certain extent, aren't companies cognizant of the importance of making sure to the public that their product was not manufactured with some aspect of human slavery or something of that kind? Certainly, and that's what we still see. We see the companies we work with coming to us and saying, listen, even though it isn't a regulatory requirement, we want to still be sourcing ethically and be socially conscious, and so we still want to track as much as we can. Uh, but all of these programs require funding. Funding then means it cuts into the margin, and so it, it all balances on the economy and the price. Right? So that's the bottom line. On top of everything, now we have the Paris Climate Agreement that was just negotiated by multiple countries and the requirement that the signatories to that agreement significantly reduce their carbon emissions. That means they're going to have to turn around and require that from companies as well. So what are the additional challenges there? I mean, is that all part of the same routine that you've talked about, or there are additional measures that companies have to take to make sure that they have really green supply chains and they're cutting their emissions? Over the years, we've seen companies embrace sustainability initiatives, but overall, there's still only a handful of brands and companies that are cognizant of what they're doing for sustainability. And that's mainly because of the cost that's involved in doing the research and due diligence um, to measure sustainability. Uh, I think these are, are great initiatives that all of the governments came back to, but there is no mechanism to establishing or setting global carbon standards, right? And Overall, the uh, you know worldwide, the sanctions have to fall on the countries, each specific country that you know of import or export, in order to do those sanctions. So I think we see a few things that are going to come out of this. Yes, we've built a, additional awareness to uh, the carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions and, and wastewater usage over the years, but can we measure? our impact on the environment, and if so, at what cost? The outdoor industry still seems to be the biggest proponent to support this, mainly because their consumer base is concerned about the environment. But overall, I think that we're going to need to address this slowly, and and the change and, and adaptation into everyone's supply chain will take a while. Another important aspect here are the challenges that companies face in emerging new markets, specifically Africa, which has a lot of potential but also a lot of challenges. Could you talk about some of the compliance issues and some of the visibility issues that come from the so-called uncharted territory involved in uh, sourcing in Africa? 
we have to realize, first of all, that Africa is a continent and only certain countries have the best opportunities for sourcing. And, and the, the brands we work with are reminding us of that every time we talk about Africa. Some companies we work with have had great experiences, specifically in the Eastern Africa countries, and in particular, Ethiopia and Kenya. So PVH Corp, Walmart, VF Corporation have established supplier bases that uh, have great potential and uh, have become bigger players in, let's say, the garment manufacturing. But they do admit that the road ahead isn't easy. Factories need to be established. Raw material providers need to be connected to the factories. And then labor needs to be trained. So do you agree, in fact, that Africa does have a lot of potential as, a, as an important sourcing area? But for that matter, you know, how long will it be before it really reaches that potential? Any idea? Certainly, Africa has great potential for sourcing. There's also great potential for consumer base, which is growing in regions of Africa. Interestingly enough, way back in 2009, the Chinese government showed what they called strong interest in setting up factories in Africa and helping that continent develop a manufacturing base and boost its economy. And they actually suggested that you know the Chinese know-how, we're seeing this happen in Vietnam also, we're taking the expertise that China has, and they're setting up production and, and marketing to boost each of these emerging sourcing regions, Africa, Vietnam, Myanmar, so that they could take advantage of any of the preferential trade agreements. And additionally, we need to consider that the infrastructure improvements within each of these countries and regions need to be in place to attract the companies. So that might take a little longer. But overall, we see the passage of uh, AGOA uh, for a period of 10 years rather than the three-year term that was set in the past means that companies can now take root in African countries and not worry about losing that preferential trade in a few years. Sorry, Gary, you say AGOA? Okay, that yeah. for what? What I'm talking about is the African Growth and Opportunity Act, better known as AGOA or A-G-O-A. So this is a U.S. trade act. It was originally acted in 2000, but it was only for a three-year term and then had to be renewed each three years. Now, uh, this summer, it was renewed until 2025. So the legislation then enhances the whole market access to the U.S., um, for the sub-Saharan African countries. What are the biggest trade compliance restrictions you think that companies need to be watching out for just when sourcing from new regions generally? Well, we have to be conscious of the fact that our, our sourcing operations are, are not just importing and exporting along one trade route. So sourcing strategies need to be multidirectional. We produce in Vietnam to sell in Spain. We produce in Vietnam to sell in into China. So there's almost endless combinations that exist nowadays, and, and most of the truly global supply chain executives work that way and consider these combinations. We're always reminded by the supply chain executive that shifting production to a specific country to take advantage of lower duty isn't always going to work out, right? It depends on the country. And we need to have this endless combination of value-added benefits. It's not solely preferential trade. Product quality, product price, supplier capabilities, capacity, whether I have the trading party network to support that, right? My raw material providers, logistics, other partners, they're the key reasons for moving to sourcing regions.
So far, we've been talking and looking at this issue with a very long lens. But what do you think about nearshoring, Gary? Do you think that's a reality? And what are some of the concerns uh, that, that arise from that? Is, that? is that really happening? When we talk about nearshoring, Bob, we have to be aware, once again, of where we're exporting and importing into. So for the U.S., nearshoring may not be a reality, We've been sourcing from Mexico for a lot of our manufacturing, and that exists today. But let's think about Europe. I can nearshore source from Africa into Spain. So nearshoring, uh, again, has that endless combination of trade routes. So we need to think not just uh, U.S.-centric when we talk about nearshoring. So many things to be concerned about. It's just going to get more and more complex. But, uh, Gary Baracco, what you shared with us today, I think, is a big help for companies to get their arms around the challenges of the future in terms of uh, new, new, uh, new trends in insuring and sourcing around the world, compliance, trade restrictions, visibility, and the whole thing. So, Gary, uh, once again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Bob. It was great to be talking with you. That was my conversation with Gary Baracco of Amber Road, talking about the challenges that global traders face in the months and years ahead. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.